I think God's trying to say something to us this morning. Something about his faithfulness. And that is also borne out when we get to the end of this chapter that we're going to look at this morning. And if you're feeling, you've been feeling, where are you, God, in my circumstances? Where are you in fulfilling my prom- the promises you made to me? The word of the Lord for you this morning is, by faith and patience, you will inherit the promises of God. So let's come now to Hebrews in chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. This passage, this chapter is a transitional chapter in the book of Hebrews. Before the writer gets into the heart of the teaching, he wants to impart to the Hebrew Christians. He wants to just take a step back for a moment in this chapter and just consider where where he's come from and then where he's going to go. And so this chapter forms some transition and he makes some notes on the way to these Christians in order to give them some direction. And essentially there are three sections to this chapter. In verse 1, section 1, verses 1 to 6, he deals with the foundations for the Christian life. In section 2, verses 7 to 12, he encourages his readers to press on to receive all that God has for them. And then in section 3, verses 13 to 20, he deals with the faithfulness of God. So that's where we're going this morning, folks, into the faithfulness of God. And we'll look at all of these sections before moving on to the understanding in the next chapter, the full, in more detail, the ministry of Jesus. So let's read verses, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often fails, falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those... Oh, sorry, I've gone too far, haven't I? I was only going to verse 6. Let's stop there for a moment, verse 6. We'll come to verse 7 in a moment. But what the writer to the Hebrews is saying here is that each one of us has to start with a good foundation in our lives, that God wants to lay a foundation for us so that then we can move on into the fullness of all that he has for us, and in our understanding of the word. At some stage, each one of us at school began by learning our ABC. Anyone not learn their ABC? A, B, C, D, E, F, G. (laughs) That'll do. And that was the foundation for the rest of our learning throughout school life, wasn't it? This week I went into Caldmarsh School to help interview for an early, new early years foundation stage teacher. And part of the interview process that the candidates had to do was give a 15 minute lesson on phonics to a group of six children who were aged around five. 
And phonics was something I'd never come across. I'd never really understood it. I'd heard the word, but didn't really know how it worked. And so I was fascinated to watch the teachers demonstrating the sounds of letters and groups of letters and helping children to recognize them, to say them, to relate them to specific objects. This is C, evidently. Anyone tell me what, why that's C? Castanets? Is it? Oh, okay, that's C. All right, in phonics. S? <laughs> any more? Any more? <laughs> so there's all these phonics, the way of teaching children how to learn their ABC and then how to relate them to words and to objects and things like that. And that lays a foundation in their lives for the teaching that they will go on through the rest of their education. It puts in place the building blocks for education that will enable children to go on to higher levels of learning. However, if Zoe, when sitting in the lecture theatre at university, asks if she can go over the ABC once again, she'd probably be thrown out. Yeah? We move on beyond the foundation. You start with the foundation, but that then prepares you for the rest. But you don't keep going back to the foundation. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in this passage. He says, stop, keep going over the foundations. You should have grasped this by now. These foundations should enable you to progress from teaching that is milk to teaching that is meat. It's it's meat that we will start looking at next week. And then he tells us what those foundation stones need to be in our lives in order to build for God, to build into us all that he wants to build in, in terms of the truth of his word. So what are those foundation stones? Well, they're repentance from dead works, faith in God, baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection, and eternal judgment. Everyone clear on those? Everyone happy with that foundation? In other words, if you want to understand the deeper things of faith, you need to have these truths as foundation stones. So let's just summarize them for a moment. I could spend the whole passage just teaching, a whole morning just teaching those six foundations. In fact, we could take six weeks over them, or even six months. But we're just going to take two minutes. The first two, repentance from dead works and faith in God, have to do with coming to faith. Repentance from dead works is about turning away from pagan worship or Jewish ceremony as a means to obtain salvation. In our own era, it may mean turning away from no faith or from relying on good works. But whatever it is, it's turning away from everything that we rely on to get us to heaven that's not of God. And turning towards the living God. That's foundation stone number one. Foundation stone number two is to put our trust and our faith in God and on the finished works of Christ on the cross. Faith in God means trusting God for salvation and setting your hope and destiny in him and in no other and in nothing else. That's faith in God. I'm not reliant on my money. I'm not reliant on my job. I'm not reliant on my family. I'm reliant on one thing only for my salvation. My father God. That's foundation stone number two. The second two foundation stones, or the third and fourth foundation stone, are to do with joining the church, the community of God's people. For the early church, membership of the church was dependent on two things. Being baptised and being filled with the Spirit. 
If you were baptized and you were filled with the Spirit, you were a member of the church. That's the third and fourth foundation stones. Are those clear in your life? Have you been baptized? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Those are the qualifications for membership of the body of Christ. If you haven't been baptized, and if you haven't been filled with the Spirit, I suggest you sort it all out. Because God wants those to bring you into the fullness of his community. And then the third, fourth, fifth and sixth foundation stones are to do with our future hope and the ultimate purpose of this salvation. What is our hope? How many times do I have to teach this foundation stone? What is your hope? Heaven is not our hope. Resurrection is our hope. You only have to read through Paul's letters a few times when he he keeps going on about our hope is the resurrection to eternal life. Our hope is that we will be raised from the dead. Our hope that like Christ has been raised from the dead and gone before us as the first fruits of our faith, so we will be resurrected to eternal life. Yes, we get eternal life, and if we don't make it there um, to eternal life before Jesus returns, we might get heaven. But heaven is not our hope. Eternal life is not our hope in itself. Resurrection is the biblical hope for the Christian. So that foundation stone perhaps needs laying a bit further and a bit more in our lives. Your hope is that one day you will be raised from the dead and you will be perfected and you will be like Christ for you shall see him as he is. Amen? Sorry to go on about that. We can be confident of a future beyond the grave. Not floating around like some ethereal negligee. But we will not be plucking on a harp. But we will be living in the kingdom of God under the government of Jesus in a resurrected body that, he, that, has his, that is like his resurrected body, his perfected body. And our hope is also the assurance that when we stand before God at the judgment... We can stand in confidence, not in arrogance, knowing that this mortal flesh has been clothed in immortality. And we will stand in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that our sins are covered, and we will enter into the eternal pleasure of our Lord. That's foundation stone number six. So one, repentance from dead works. Two, faith in God. Three, baptism. Four, Laying on of hands for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Five, resurrection. resurrection. Six, confidence before the eternal throne of God when we stand in judgment. There's your foundation stones. Get them laid, because then you can move on. So, having said, get that clear, he then says... He then gives a stark warning. He says, it's impossible for someone who who has experienced this hope, if they choose to walk away from it, to be brought back to repentance. Exactly what he means here has been the subject of debate over the centuries and has divided opinion between different theological groups. 
Does he mean that if a Christian backslides, he can't come back to faith? No, he doesn't mean that. Somebody who backslides may never stop believing, but may just be compromised in their lifestyle for a while. A backslider is not someone who's turned away. They've just gone down a different path for a while. They've taken a diversion. Does he mean that it's possible for a Christian, having received full salvation, to lose our salvation if we renounce our faith? That's certainly the way some people have interpreted this passage. But when we take a scripture, we never take it in isolation. And Paul in, in Romans 5.8 goes through in a lot of detail the fact that nothing shall separate us out of his hand. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, principalities, powers, nothing shall separate us from his hand. Separate us from the love of God. However, having said that, made that position clear, different commentators you read will come down on one side or the other. Some will say that people referred to in this passage perhaps were never really saved in the first place. So that's why they could possibly, if they've gone through the motions but never really committed with their heart and then wandered away, they will never come back to faith. They've tasted of the good things but without ever being a Christian really deep down inside. Others would say that it is really possible to lose your salvation. If you genuinely and completely turn your back on the faith. Whichever stance we take, the important thing for you and me is not to judge another individual. Judgment is in the hand of God, not with us. For us, our responsibility is to press on in our faith. And that is ultimately what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Keep going. Don't turn back. Don't stand down. Don't turn aside. Press on. If you're pressing on in your faith, you don't have to worry about this question anyway. Keep going. Keep the foundation stones in place. Press on into the fullness of all that God has for you. And the issue of whether you'll lose your salvation or not will never come up. Be faithful. And this is where the writer goes in the next section. So let's turn now to verses 7 to 12. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, brings forth vegetation vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. But beloved, you are convinced, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish and imitators of those Uh, but will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now what the writer here is saying, in fairly 
um, poetic language, shall we say, is that we can be like a field that produces good crops for God and receives his blessing. And there's some reference here back to the parable of the sower, a good field that receives, that brings forth a good harvest. Or we can be like land full of thorns and thistles. And thorns and thistles refers back to the fall. The consequence of the fall was thorns and thistles coming forth and a curse of God upon the land. And that's why he says we can be like a a field full of thorns and thistles and a curse can come upon that land because it becomes fruitless. He then says, what you do in response to faith, how you live out the faith that you've taken on, how you show love for his people, what kind of hand you stretched out to help them, is that which God will take note of. And that which then will go on to produce further fruit in your life. Pressing on in love and action, motivated by faith in God, gives us a certainty that we'll receive the hope of our faith. And then he says, don't be lazy and sluggish. Why does he say that? Because they were lazy and sluggish. He says, don't be lazy and sluggish. Don't just expect it all just to come on you. Don't just expect it all just to happen for you. You've got to take some responsibility for that good crop coming forth in your, in your life. You've got to take some responsibility. It won't just happen if you just sit there lazy and sluggish. Each one of us has to take responsibility for our lives and do something with them. Do the good works that God's given us to do. To step out into the ministry that he has for us. Step out into the plate in the place where he's put us and speak forth his word. You and I will not bring forth a good fruit just by letting the land lie fallow. All that will happen if the land lies fallow is that thorns and thistles will come forth. You and I have responsibility to... Um, Weed and nurture our good land in here so that a good crop and a good harvest will come forth. Coming to faith in God is not about being passive. It's about taking hold of our destiny and moving out into the purposes of God and taking all every opportunity to serve him and to work for him and to worship him and to do all that is required of us. And that's what the writer is trying to emphasize here. Don't just sit back and wait for God to do it all. Get on and do the work yourselves. Look after this garden. And it will bring forth a good crop. And he says, if you press on with God, not being a lazy Christian, In faith and in patience, you will inherit the promises of God. And there's those two things need to work together. Faith, belief that God will do what he's promised and will see your destiny fulfilled. And patience, not preempting the purposes of God, but waiting upon him. We'll come back to the matter of faith later on in the letter. But suffice to say, when God has spoken a word over your life, 
You need both both faith and patience to receive it. Faith to believe what, that what God has spoken will come into being. Patience to wait for it and not to preempt the purposes of God and thereby give birth to an Ishmael. And that brings us nicely to section 3, which begins with a reference to Abraham. So let's look at verse 13 to verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited to obtain the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope of both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek from last week? Tuck that one away. We're coming to it in a week, so week's time. We'll start to unpack it next week. But the writer begins this, bit, this section by talking about the promise God gave to Abraham. What is he referring to here? Well, turn with me back to Genesis in chapter 22. Verse 15 to 18. It's directly after Abraham has been about to offer up Isaac on the altar. And in verse 15 it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your your son, your only son. Indeed, I'll greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. So God made a promise to Abraham. Straight after, Abraham has demonstrated that he's been willing to give everything back to God. And it's because of Abraham's obedience in not even withholding his only son that God was willing to make him such a certain promise based on the highest possible oath. God swore by himself. And in order to receive the fullness of all that God has for us, we need first to be willing to lay it all on the altar as Abraham was willing. For God will fulfill his promise when he knows that we are totally committed to his purposes. Abraham was willing to lay it all down and God then swore to him by the highest possible oath. The only place we find it in scripture where God swears. And 
And essentially in this oath, God was putting his reputation on the line. He was saying in effect, if I do not fulfill my promise to Abraham, do not trust in my faithfulness. But on the basis of his fulfillment of this promise, we know that God can be trusted. God was putting himself out there and saying, if I do not bless Abraham, and if I do not make him a blessing in all the earth, and if his, his seed do not possess the gates of their enemies, and if, if through him all the nations of the earth are not blessed, then don't trust in me. And we have the testimony of time that says that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And because he has done it, and because we can see it, we can trust in the faithfulness of God. Because God who promised does not lie. And when God has promised things in our lives and promised things over our lives and promised things to us through his word, we can trust in his faithfulness. God will not let us down. It may not seem like it's happening right now, but how do we inherit the promises? Through faith and patience. And God has promised a destiny to you and I. And because he's spoken it, and on the basis of his proven fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, we can trust him. We can be confident that what he has spoken, he will do. We do not need to doubt God. We do not need to doubt his faithfulness. We do not need to doubt his love for us. And even when we go through trials and tribulations, his word is certain. Remember, the recipients of this letter were already experiencing persecution from the Jewish authorities. And were about to enter a time of persecution from the Romans. Their only hope, just as ours is, was in God's faithfulness. And when the storms of life hit us, we need to set our hope in God Not say, God, why are you doing this? God, why is this happening to me? God, why isn't it working out as I wanted? No. By faith and patience. God, I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in your faithfulness. I trust that you are able to get me through because you are greater than this and you have promised and you are faithful. And I will set my trust in you. And that faith will act as an anchor to our soul. It will keep us firm in spite of rough seas. Because that anchor is sure and steadfast. And where is the anchor placed? Where does it say that anchor is placed in the passage? It's it's behind the curtain. It's a funny place for an anchor to be, isn't it, behind a curtain? Of course, the the writer is referring to the temple. And this is the veil uh, behind which the priest entered once a year on the Day of Atonement. If you want to know all about that, read Leviticus 16. And he's saying Jesus has gone into that place, not the earthly temple... But Jesus has gone into the throne room of God in heaven, of which the earthly temple is a model. And there he has made atonement for us. He has made us, brought us back into relationship with God. He's reconnected us with God through his blood and through his great sacrifice. And he is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
And so he is our anchor. And our anchor is in the surety of his atoning sacrifice that's turned away God's wrath once and for all and therefore guarantees that all the promises of God for us, for our lives, for our future, for our destiny, are secure because they're with Christ in the throne room of God, having having had our sins cleansed away, having had our relationship with God renewed through that covenant. And he stands as the great high priest on our behalf, giving us surety. Press on. Press through. Trust in the faithfulness of God, for it's set in a secure place. Our anchor is in Christ Jesus. And he will keep us safe and secure. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can trust you as we can trust in no other. And that you will fulfill that which you've promised. And you will bring us safely through to the ultimate hope that we have, which is resurrection in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord God, that that is safe and secure because of the completed work of Christ. And we give him praise this morning. Amen.